Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us for... uh... Uh, this event, Heritage Events Live. I'm Joseph Lacani. I'm the director of the Simon Center for American Studies uh, at the Heritage Foundation. It is my pleasure to uh, welcome everybody here for this event, Conservatism and America's Future. It's a lively topic, as you know. Um, I'm also delighted uh, to welcome everybody here as part of this Kirk Lecture Series, Russell Kirk Lecture Series. Russell Kirk believed deeply in what he called the permanent things the permanent things, those moral and spiritual truths uh, that makes government, uh, democratic self-government possible. And uh, Dr. Kirk viewed the conservative movement, yes, the conservative movement uh, as the crucial actor in the task of recovering and defending those permanent things. And there's no more important scholar of the conservative movement uh, in America today than our speaker. George H. Nash. Dr. Nash has been studying the conservative movement for decades. Uh, We've made a full biography of Dr. Nash available to you, but just a couple of highlights here. His three-volume biography uh, of Herbert Hoover, his groundbreaking book, uh, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945, and a more recent book, Reappraising the Right, The Past and Future of American Conservatism, just to name a few. I think that if pundits on the left and on the right could just suspend their addiction to Twitter for a few moments and pick up one of Dr. Nash's books or read one of his his many essays, there would be a lot less nonsense talk uh, about the conservative movement and about the United States, frankly. And I think there'd be a lot more wisdom, a lot more wisdom in the air, uh, not only about the weaknesses of the conservative movement, but also about its strengths and its historic attachment to the American founding. Dr. Nash, in, uh, in his book, Reappraising the Right, he quoted William F. Buckley, who said that uh, uh, regarding uh, the conservative movement, the wells of regeneration are infinitely deep. The wells of regeneration are infinitely deep. Dr. Nash understands better than most the capacity of conservatism to tap into those deep wells and point the way back toward political and cultural renewal. Dr. Nash is gonna offer some uh, relatively brief remarks, 10, 11, 12 minutes, followed by a lengthy question and answer session. So send those questions in. We've got a great program in store for you. And I'm now delighted to invite our speaker, Dr. George H. Nash to join me on screen. Dr. Nash, over to you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Joe, for that very gracious introduction. It's uh, both a pleasure and an honor to be speaking with you today under the auspices of the Heritage Foundation. I've had opportunities to do that in the past and they have always been rewarding ones. And I look forward to the conversation of the next hour. Several years ago, the New York Times technology columnist, David Pogue, listed the five stages of grieving when you lose your computer files. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and moving to Amish country. It sounds like a description of the mood gripping many conservatives in the wake of the last presidential election. In early 2021, many American conservatives are in a state of acute anxiety, convinced that they are under siege as never before, and that they are losing. Across the nation, the commanding heights of the federal bureaucracy, the news media, the entertainment industry, the high-tech corporations, and the educational system from preschool to graduate school are dominated by people who seem increasingly hostile to conservative beliefs. In the social media and elsewhere, identity politics and the ideology of wokeism appear to reign supreme and a censorious left-wing cancel culture operates with virtual impunity. Adding to the sense of conservative vulnerability is a recent trend that appears to be accelerating. 
It concerns what scholars call America's civil religion. For many years, nearly all American conservatives have believed that the American experience has been, on the whole, a success story, and that at the heart of this experience has been a commitment to individual liberty, limited government, and the political philosophy embodied in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Today, for many Americans, this story no longer appeals. Instead, large numbers of young Americans are being taught that the essence of the American experience has not been freedom, but slavery. And that even now, America is mired in systemic racism which raises a troubling question. Will the rising generation of young people who have been taught to despise their political heritage be reachable by conservatives who defend it? Is the American belief in American exceptionalism still persuasive? Another challenge that conservatives now confront is an internal one. American conservatism since 1945 has never been monolithic. It has been a coalition that evolved to include five distinct components. Libertarians and classical liberals like Hayek and Friedman, traditionalist conservatives like Russell Kirk, anti-communist cold warriors and national security conservatives, disillusioned men and women of the left known as neoconservatives, and the religious right, or as we now say, social conservatives. William F. Buckley Jr. and Ronald Reagan were its great epilematic and ecumenical leaders. Sustaining this alliance was a theoretical construct or modus vivendi that came to be known as fusionism. That is a fusing or merging of the competing perspectives of the libertarians and traditionalists. Although never without its critics, fusionism as a formula for political action proved to be a considerable success. It taught libertarians and traditionalists that they needed each other and that American conservatism must not become sectarian or doctrinaire. From a historical perspective, fusionist conservatism as a modus vivendi held up pretty well during the Cold War era and for a time thereafter. But about five years ago, the fusionist alliance and its institutional manifestations inside the Beltway came under blistering attack from the populist nationalist eruption, as it came to be called, associated particularly with Donald Trump. Since then, the conservative movement in America has been a house divided, with contentious factions engaged in an often rancorous tug of war. Now, different observers use different terms to characterize the contending factions, elitists versus populists, the establishment versus outsiders, institutionalists inside the Beltway who wish to govern versus Trumpians outside the Beltway who wish to drain the swamp. Think tankers who talk the highbrow language of public policy versus militants who employ the combative language of war. Within the past three years, the once dominant philosophy of fusionism has been denounced by some of its critics on the right as a dead consensus afflicted with zombie Reaganism and what they deride as free market fundamentalism. Not so long ago, movement conservatives routinely espoused the principles of limited government and free trade. In 2021, growing numbers of populist nationalist insurgents are rejecting these principles as stale and outdated dogmas and are instead boldly advocating using governmental power to implement their agenda. As a historian, I cannot predict precisely how this intellectual drama 
will unfold in the years just ahead. But I think I can predict that there will be no clear-cut restoration of the fusionist status quo that existed before 2016. History does not work that way. What is more likely to happen is an attempt by mainstream conservative figures to refurbish the house of conservatism with a certain amount of Trumpian furniture, but without Trump himself as the proprietor. The most likely scenario is that many prominent conservatives will become somewhat less libertarian and anti-statist on economic and social policy as they try to nail down the working class vote. In some precincts on the right, the language of populistic solidarity and communitarianism, not individual liberty, will probably become more pronounced. But it is also likely that under unrelenting pressure from the cultural revolution now being waged by the far left, many embattled conservatives will increasingly rally around the language of individual, individual freedom. And not just economic freedom, but religious freedom, freedom of speech, and the freedom to live and let live without harassment. Faced with these multiple challenges, how can conservatives lose their sense of losing? To begin with, they should take heart from one of their most impressive achievements of the past 50 years. The creation of a burgeoning counterculture of alternative media, foundations, think tanks, homeschooling networks, and more. From the perspective of a historian, this flowering of applied conservatism, this institutionalization of conservative discourse and advocacy is a remarkable development. Since the 1960s, what has been called a conservative parallel universe has arisen and it continues to expand. Conservatives should also take consolation if not exactly comfort, from the acts of aggression being committed by zealots on the left. For these excesses are opening up new opportunities for conservatives to cultivate alliances with dissident liberals and others in defense of free speech, civility, and a balanced affirmative interpretation of American history. One of the most encouraging signs on this front is the brand new Academic Freedom Alliance, headquartered in Princeton, which was launched a couple of weeks ago. Still, conservatives must do more than celebrate their past achievements and react defensively to the challenge from the left. To lose their fear of losing, they must redouble their efforts to expand their influence beyond the ranks of those already committed to the cause. Too often, it seems to me, the conservative parallel universe does not engage sufficiently with those who live outside its boundaries. And that includes millions of Americans, including Asian, Hispanic, and Black Americans, who in the past year have been repelled by the fanaticism and illiberalism of the woke left. More than at any other moment in recent times, these Americans are open to conservative outreach. In pursuit of these and other opportunities, conservatives must not forsake the language of liberty and persuasion for the apocalyptic language of war. Reckless and militarized rhetoric can repel as well as attract. And successful politics, as Reagan taught, is about addition, not subtraction. In this time of uncertainty and peril, it might be useful for conservatives of all persuasions to step back from their rivalries for a moment and ask themselves a simple question. What do conservatives 
want. To put it in elementary terms, I believe they want what nearly all conservatives since 1945 have wanted. They want to be free. They want to live meaningful and virtuous lives. And they want to be secure from threats both beyond and within our borders. They want to live in a society whose government respects and encourages these aspirations while otherwise leaving people alone. Freedom, virtue, safety, goals reflected in the libertarian, traditionalist, and national security dimensions of the conservative movement as it has developed over the past 75 years. In other words, there is at least a little fusionism in nearly all of us. Conservatives should remember that. And this leads me to a final observation. If conservatives are to reclaim the culture and prosper again in the public square, they must retain a fusionist sensibility. That is to say, an ecumenical disposition, recognizing that the wisdom of conservatism comes from many sources. They must beware of the sectarian temptation the impulse to go it alone. If conservatives remember this and look outward to the opportunities around them, I believe better days will come. Thank you. Well, Dr. Nash, uh, thank you, sir, for that really just splendid talk. I don't know anybody else who's able to compact in such a short amount of time uh, so much wisdom that I know you've gleaned over the years through your many years of study of the conservative movement, calm, rational analysis. You're the consummate historian. Thank you for that, sir. Uh, you know, one of the questions I have for you, you've raised so many important issues here and some very provocative phrases. Conservatives uh, need to lose the sense of losing. <laughs> How do they do that? I wanna get to that. But one question I wanna ask you, you, you mentioned early on in the, in the talk about, about American exceptionalism, that idea being under under assault. Yeah. You and I are both old enough uh, to remember uh, America uh, having a real moment of triumph, not triumphalism, but triumph when the Soviet Union collapsed, right, in 1991. The revolutions of 1989, the Soviet Union collapses in 1991. And the conservative view of the world, of human freedom, of a market economy, of American exceptionalism, it really seemed to be vindicated on the world stage in a profound way. You and I have that shared lived memory. The challenge for young people now, back to your point, is not only do they not have the lived memory, they don't really have the historical memory because that whole portion of, of, our, of our historical life is hardly being taught anymore. So I guess the big question is, how can we as conservatives educate, help educate the, the next generation in this concept of American exceptionalism when they don't have the lived history and they hardly have, you know, the, the, the recorded history in their heads? Yes, that's a very good question. Thank you, Joe. I think one way to approach this is to look at what is happening right now. There was a, a major development about a year and a half ago when the New York Times launched the 1619 Project which argued to much fanfare that the essence of the American experience was not the development of liberty, but the persistence of slavery. Yes. That uh, got a lot of attention, but I am happy to say that the response to it has been encouraging because it has prompted conservatives and some liberal historians actually to uh, push back against this oversimplified uh, version or a caricature, a caricature even of American history. So I, I would point, for example, to the work of the National Association of Scholars and particularly to uh, Peter Wood, its president, who has written a book called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Uh, I would point out that the Woodson uh, Foundation is producing something called 1776 Unites, uh, a project which is even promoting and developing curricular material for the classrooms. And that's a very important point that I, I need to underscore here because 
we're speaking now of the rising generation. You and I are old enough to have some historical memory that would, would reinforce our, our worldview, so to speak, but there are many who do not. And so out of this whole controversy over the 1619 projects, project, there have developed now opportunities and responses on the right and to some extent on the moderate left that bring a more balanced approach. And I would say that this is important because it's not just conservatives now criticizing the other side. Conservatives have been pretty good over the years and been used to that when they've been in a minority of being critics. But what's necessary, it seems to me, are more proactive efforts. And so that 1776 Unites uh, undertaking, for example, is useful because it's developing curricular material for the schools. So I would say that um, I'm somewhat hopeful that out of this latest uh, argument that we've been having uh, and the, the unduly harsh portrayal of American history, there yes. will come now more, more success in bringing the, the more affirmative side of American experience or a more balanced interpretation uh, into the picture. And the target audience, so much of it, has to be those who are being taught in the schools. I just uh, read within the last 24 hours that something like 56 million American children from grade school through high school are in school, or at least having nominally anyway, some kind of schooling during this COVID situation. Uh, that is a huge audience, and I believe that the 1619 Project has been very active in getting their curricular approach accepted in many school districts. So right down there in the local community, school district by school district, efforts, I think, have to be made. So that would be one response that I, I would want to underscore for you. Yeah, you made a hugely important point there, it seems to me, Dr. Nash, because what you're talking about is a very grassroots civil society uh, kind of effort, so much of the attention, not just here uh, here in Washington, it was on the national government, right, on the federal government, on the presidency. You're, you're talking about ve something very, very grassroots and civil society oriented, which conservatives are supposed to care about, yeah? Yes, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree, yes. Yeah. I, I wonder if picking up that point, though, about the kind of the overreach of groups like the 1619 Project, this this raises another question, the excesses of the left. But when the hard left really goes off the rails, how does this open up opportunities for conservatives uh, to form uh, alliances, not only across the conservative movement, but with people outside the conservative movement? Do you have, do you have some hopeful uh, signs of that, maybe, the excesses of the left creating new opportunities? Yes, I think so, definitely. Uh, I think one of the notable developments of the last three or four years has been the rise of what I call dissident liberals. You know, the cancel culture is creating a lot of victims. Yeah. I saw a list just this morning, <clears throat> pardon me, of over 100 college professors who have been canceled or suffered some kind of, you know, severe punishment in the last year or so across the country, wow. and probably many more than those were, that have gotten into the news. So the cancel culture is producing victims and it's producing critics even on the left. And I think, for example, of the website uh, Quillette, which was founded about three or four years ago by a young Australian woman, but it's international in scope. I, I'm thinking now also of the Heterodox Academy organization that Jonathan Haidt and others who think of themselves as center left uh, have organized as um, forums for this kind of phenomenon. And I'm thinking, now of such individuals as Barry Weiss, uh, B-A-R-I, Barry Weiss, who resigned from the New York Times editorial staff last summer after a, a great tumult. And she has been quite eloquent um, in um, critiquing this phenomenon of far-left wokeism. And Andrew Sullivan has been attacked and done yes. some of that, uh, Matt Taibbi and so forth. There are a number of people out there. Now, they're not conservatives in the full gamut sense of that expression. But it seems to me that there is uh, developing here a potential which the uh, Academic Freedom Alliance that I referenced earlier is uh, exploiting to have a common ground in support of the basic elements of a free society, especially in academe and journalism. That is to say, um, uh, liberty of expression, civility of discourse, and so on. Yes. 
I think the conservatives should do more to reach out to these people, uh, not for grand alliances, but simply to have that interaction. You know, some, a revolution, it is said, devours its children. And when you have a revolution like this, a cultural revolution, we colloquially call it uh, right now from the left, there are those who dissent from it or do not go far enough or feel it's gone too far and they get pushed to the side. Yes. Some people's eyes, and I, I, I would speculate a little that this might be the makings of a new wave of what we call neoconservatism. That is people on the left who've been disillusioned by its premises and its excesses and then move uh, toward the right, if not necessarily full-blown into the conservative camp. And if I may give one more example of this, there is something that was founded about three years ago, I'm not sure how active, active it is at this moment, called the walkaway movement. And this is uh, consists of people, mostly I think in their 20s and 30s, who have grown up in the left, very conventionally liberal perhaps, but they are walking away from the Democratic Party or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And to the audience here, I would reference one particular young woman who gave a video for this walkaway group. It's on YouTube and her first name is Georgia and her last name begins with the letter H. But if you just type in walkaway Georgia H, you will find it. I tested that just uh, not too long ago. And the amazing thing is that with a little help from some conservative publicity that uh, came about when she posted this last fall, over 1,730,000 hits have gone to, to watch her video, her autobiographical 40-minute account, so just her in a room, just talking wow. to the uh, camera, explaining Amazing. how she grew up in Massachusetts, a conventional progressive who thought Republicans were evil. She went into Teach for America after college, and she accounted a kind, encountered a kind of left-wing racism, actually. And increasingly, and she's the same age as AOC, she has defined herself against that. Now, I don't know how activist she is or wants to be, and I don't know whether people have tried to contact her, but there are people like this out there who it seems to me could be brought forward, maybe put on a panel somewhere to tell their story and engage maybe in peer-to-peer -peer yes. discussion. Yes. So I see many signs of hope along those lines, and I think it is a pool of potential, of potential uh, assistance to conservatives as they try to rebut and, and yeah. refute and push back against this phenomenon of leftist uh, zealotry. Yes, Dr. Nash, th th that's a tremendously important what you've just said about this kind of pushing back against the, the real leftist madness, maybe in a similar way uh, that uh, leftists became disillusioned in the 1960s with communism. Once, you know, once the Berlin Wall goes up, uh, they're dividing East and West Berlin, this concrete physical barrier preventing people from 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 leaving uh, uh, East Germany. I mean, the manifest failure of the ideology was was on display and you had this neoconservatism grow out of that of that that kind of awareness, right? That disillusionment with what what communism actually produces in people's lives. You're seen to be suggesting we may be approaching a moment like that with the radical left and the way that it's it's just going off the rails. Is that what you're saying? I am. I think that there is that, is that potential. I, I want to reference, if I may, an article that I just came across yesterday, as it happens, by Barry Weiss. And you yeah. can find it if you type in her name. It's called The Self-Silencing Majority. And she's very critical of those who have, are censoring themselves. And apparently polling data shows that something like three quarters of people who call themselves Republicans now are are on their own initiative silencing themselves lest they get into trouble in the workplace or yeah. in the community and so on. And a fair number of Democrats are doing the same thing. So she's calling for people to take a stand and be bold and uh, not not persist that way. And I find that helpful. So I do commend her writing uh, to you. Yeah, well, that's gonna take, as you suggested earlier, you talked about a fusionist spirit that conservatives need to bring to the table. An ecumenical spirit. Let's let's put it in those terms. If if conservatives can recognize this opportunity and be willing to reach out to the sensible center left, because that seems to me a sensible center left, right? That that wants to stand up for free speech. Yes, I think that 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 is happening in in some of the ways that I've tried to indicate now and specifically. And it strikes me that uh, as this uh, tendency goes on, this aggressiveness, this this overreach, yeah. really on the left. 
it yeah. will produce not only a conservative response, but also some in the center. And I'm told yeah. that many of the people who have just joined this new uh, Academic Freedom Alliance are liberal professors who say, you know, you conservatives, you occasional conservatives, you don't have so much to worry about in academe. We're the ones because we're, we're under constant fear that we're going to say wow. something that's going to cause the Twitter mob to to rebel. So so there is, wow. a, I think there, there's an opportunity there. I want to underscore that once more. Wow. It is reminiscent, and as an historian myself, it is reminiscent of the, of the radical Jacobins in, in France who took that revolution, of course, in a very bloody direction. And if you are insufficiently supportive of the regime, off with your head. That seems to be where we are with a lot of these characters right now. Let me pick up another theme, Dr. Nash, and I want to also invite our audience here. If you want to send in some questions, please send them in here, friends, and I'll, I'll get to as many of them as I can. I'm looking down at the box here to see what might be coming in. But one of the other questions, you, you raised this issue with other groups that are potentially now more receptive to the conservative message, Asians, uh, Latinos, African-Americans, maybe in a way we haven't seen before because of this sort of radicalized uh, nature uh, of progressivism. What, what can conservatives do you know, to, to reach out to these, to these groups? Um, do you have some maybe examples going on right now that would be good for us to be thinking about? Yes, well, I, I read recently that some polling data shows now that that white progressives in the Democratic Party are to the left of persons of color who call themselves progressives. Wow. And there has been some annoyance uh, uh, that's showing up. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, I think this has been well reported and may, maybe many people watching will already be familiar with it, but out in Cupertino, California some weeks ago, uh, it was discovered that a third grader, uh, uh, this is in a school that's overwhelmingly Asian in its enrollment, a public school, a third grader was, uh, was, was told by her teacher all about uh, white privilege, et cetera, and was told to look at all the hierarchy that she's in and where she fits into this hierarchy of grievance and so forth and write a paper about it, a third grader. Now, her parents were outraged and they did something good. About, I guess, only a half a dozen families went to the principal and, and uh, let him know their complaints. And the principal suspended this uh, activity and by this teacher, and they tried to poo-poo it. And then, uh, from what I've read, some of the parents are now thinking of running for the school board. Well, Excellent. when I read or heard about it, I thought, well, maybe there is. I don't know. I'm in Massachusetts as we speak, where I, I this is where I live. I'm far from Cupertino, California. I don't know whether anyone on the conservative side in either the state level or national level has tried to reach out to those parents and say, look, you are confronting something that's far bigger than this one uh, notorious yeah. incident. And most parents, I suspect, uh, of young younger children know something's wrong, but they don't have the framework, yeah. they don't understand the vocabulary and so forth. Yeah. So it seems to me that when these things happen, there's ought to be conservatives on the alert to kind of come to their assistance. It might even be in the case of yes. in some cases of lawsuits. So I'm, I can't point to a lot of examples of what is being done, but it is noteworthy that especially uh, in California, uh, the Asian American population uh, has been uh, at the forefront of defeating that proposition in California, Proposition 16 last fall, which would have repealed the ban on on discriminatory laws. So uh, it was, would have brought back what used to be called affirmative action. It was thought it would pass. Uh, all the establishment liberal political types were in favor. It was defeated heavily, 56 to 44 percent. And one main reason was that Asian Americans had gotten mobilized. Now, I don't know whether that is intersecting with any act activities on the part of the Republican Party, for example, to cultivate a new voting bloc. But we saw from, from last fall that uh, Republicans and Trump himself made some gains among Hispanics, certain gains uh, among uh, African Americans and so forth. So there seems to be, <clears throat> pardon me, a, um, a pool again of availability there. And I know, I think I know one of your colleagues I've met or in, in conversation with him, 
uh, Mike Gonzalez has written about the, these uh, episodes. So I know that people, for example, at Heritage are aware of, of what I'm talking about. And it has just struck me that, again, the average American may still have more of that American exceptionalist sentiment in his or her bones, so to yeah. speak, and look upon what someone's called race neutrality as the aspiration, not yeah. uh, racial identitarian yeah. politics. Yeah. So I think Conservatives should be trying to look, uh, not try to defeat the uh, uh, a kind of uh, race uh, racialist view of the left with a racialist view on the right, but to have, if I may coin a word, if there's such a word, a transracial approach, are looking at people, treating them, and encouraging them with dignity as individuals and not yeah. in tribalistic categories. Yes. And I yes. think that's an important message that needs to be affirmed by conservatives. Yeah. So I not as specific yeah. as I would like, but I think that there there are there are opportunities again and probably somewhere people are taking some advantage of this. Uh, certainly the this Asian phenomenon is getting noticed in the conservative media. But what I'm saying is it can't we got to do more than just have have it reported on as an interesting phenomenon. There have to be, I think, outreach efforts so that people can be better educated to resist what it is that they are objecting to. Yes, Dr. Nash, that seems to be the key, what you just said, especially uh, outreach and education. Outreach and education, because it seems to me, if we're talking about our, our Asian communities, our Latino communities especially, we are potentially talking about our immigrant populations. And this, of course, is incredibly controversial still. We've got issues now on the border again uh, with uh, Mexicans and others coming up and, and uh, all kinds of people being displaced. It, it seems to me the immigrant population is up for grabs. You and I have not really spoken about this, but you know, what can conservatives be, be doing to um, communicating the, the core American ideals, civic education? Because Look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a son of uh, Italian immigrants. My father was born in Southern Italy, and what, what my parents gave me was this deep sense of gratitude for this country, because what they left was fascist Italy. <laughs> so America looked pretty good when they got here. And so many immigrants have that sense of gratitude uh, when they initially arrive. How can, how can conservatives do a better job at communicating you know, these, these American concepts and that welcoming sense uh, about what this country has to offer. Do you think, you know, what any any bright lights on the horizon there you see within the conservative movement on the immigration issue? Well, it, just one little anecdote pops into my head. I heard uh, recently that uh, uh, now Senator Scott of Florida, when he was governor, uh, welcomed Puerto Ricans uh, at the airport when they came over after the great terrible hurricane disaster. Wow. And just by showing up and yeah. showing compassion and concern, uh, he made some inroads. Now, obviously, the, uh, the, all this talk about socialism and the Green New Deal uh, managed to turn off several uh, Hispanic groups, notably in Florida, the Cuban-American population, already pretty anti-communist, but the Venezuelans and some others, more recent immigrant groups, refugees from Marxism in practice, socialism in practice. Those, oh those groups have been, uh, at least they've been targeted and and they 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 responded to a, a the more conservative party if you will in the last presidential and congressional yes. election and they and yes. some seats were won because of that so yes. obviously some political operatives are aware of this uh it strikes me that um that much of the the problem here is that the assimilation transitional impulse is not what it was let's say 50 80 years ago people coming in are often taught to look upon the host society as uh, oppressive yeah. and indifferent. And right. so there, there's quite a network out there on the left of people who want to bring the, these immigrants in and, and sort of mold their worldview to look yes. upon uh, themselves as aggrieved and oppressed. So conservatives, um, probably church groups do some of this. Uh, I'm not. I haven't any special example to give, but it would seem to me that it would be rather easy for people on the conservative side to give a welcoming approach uh, to those who wish to pursue the path of citizenship, for example. Yes. So um, again, it's so much, is, I think it's, as I said a moment ago, it's a matter of showing up. <laughs> it's a matter of showing up, that's right. That's right. 
Right. And we've got a different, obviously, we've got a different cultural dynamic now. Uh, we got these forces that we haven't really seen in, in our country. The, the, the really the rank anti-Americanism, I think the attempt to portray America as a thoroughly racist country through and through, all that is true. You mentioned earlier in the talk, though, conservatives have in the past been able to work together of different stripes. And unity now is really important without being overly nostalgic about the past, because often I think we can, we can get confu uh, uh, be uh, accused of that, looking back to the Reagan era or whatever it is and being accused of nostalgia. What would you say there? Are there, are there lessons from the past that are going to be useful for us now as conservatives in how we face some of these challenges, Dr. Nash? Anything come to mind? Well, I think that Reagan and Buckley succeeded in part because they, in a sense, personified the different impulses at work in the evolving conservative coalition. Yeah. Buckley was a Catholic traditionalist. He was an anti-communist cold warrior, and he was a strong supporter of the free market. God and man at Yale. What was his critique of Yale in 1951? That it was turning secular humanist at one level, and also it was it was it was inculcating people with uh, with Keynesianism. So Buckley, in his own per person, in a sense, embodied both. Yes. Reagan was uh, interesting too. I mean, Reagan, I think, was closest to the libertarian and Cold War aspects of the conservative movement, but he reached out to evangelicals and others. Uh, he uh, famously uh, was, in a sense, a, a neocon of him, of his, on his own. He had been on the left wing of the Democratic Party in the 1940s and moved <laughs> away from that for various reasons of experience and, and so forth in Hollywood. And yes. so he he had the politician's sense that you, you cultivate all of the branches of the coalition. So all the sides could see him as giving them a seat at the table. So I, I don't know that there is an ecumenical figure right now comparable to Buckley and Reagan, but they managed to, I think, be very effective diplomats. Now they obviously removed some from the fringes the Birch Society and others and anti-Semites and the like. So I, I don't want to, I would agree with you that it wasn't all just peace and love and harmony until uh, 19, 2016. No, there were there were fights, but uh, there was that ecumenical yes. sentiment. And one reason it survived so long, that, that coalition, was the Cold War, because that introduced an element of sobriety to the yes. conservative side. They couldn't all just yes. go off in all directions and fight one another and pursue their, their little agendas. That was a kind of cement that helped the coalition stay together. That's right. I don't know whether we have that today, uh, but the internal battle with the left is, is probably going to reunite the, the right to some extent, precisely because of the overreach. It could, and it makes me wonder this. I mean, one of the things I, I draw from Reagan and his legacy I don't think you could name a president in the 20th century, a Republican or a Democrat, who had a deeper attachment to the concept of American exceptionalism than Ronald Reagan. The Constitution, yes. the Declaration, America having a special role in the world, you know, that shining city on a hill, that's Reagan. And that, I think, helped to bring conservatives together. Is that not, does that not suggest something to us in our current moment? We still have threats to face, don't we, Dr. Nash? Yes. Well, first of all, Reagan on one occasion, probably several, said, America is freedom. That was just a kind of an epigram that he said. And yeah. he also argued that the American Revolution was unique in history because it was the first time that it wasn't simply a case of one uh, oppressive faction succeeding another. Right. And he, he made many eloquent statements, which I think we can still regard and may again, especially in the new political context where there is so much a uh, new expansion of government and, and edicts and executive orders and so on going out, yes. that that language of liberty may prove to be uh, you know, much more viable than it, uh, than it uh, appeared a few years ago. Yes. There is the possibility uh, that uh, the Chinese uh, expansion will uh, become a unifying feature on the right. And now it's a little complicated because part of the Trump phenomenon was, I think, uh, arguing that that America had gotten involved in faraway places to no particular purpose or so the argument went. So there's much more skepticism now about uh, involvement militarily abroad. 
So I think going forward, that will be a cautionary uh, impulse in any mix. But what is happening, uh, I I believe, is that uh, the, the Chinese communist government is very clearly expansionist in its aims in more subtle ways than, than the Russians were. Uh, this affects the Australians and the many countries in East Asia and far away. And I, I believe that that is going to become, probably going to become more obvious even as the days and weeks and months go by. And there is to some extent, this is my perception, uh, a kind of, of, of consensus across the public policy world that China might be Yes, if I could, if I could press that question, Dr. Nash, because now we're talking about the foreign policy question, which you didn't necessarily direct uh, 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 attack here in your speech. But look, with the with the with the Reagan administration, again, you had the Cold War threat was very clear, and and Reagan's foreign policy, for the most part, it did seem to unite conservatives. But since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, those inconclusive wars in, in those two countries, it seems to me that has been one of the dividing points deepening the the divisions within the conservative movement. Do you see that maybe turning around in in a a foreign policy sense as the threat of China or Russia or elsewhere becomes more more poignant, more obvious? What do you think? I think that there is that possibility. I I suspect that conservatives, especially political figures, will adopt a cautionary rhetoric and not some kind of uh, idealism that might seem to and uh, mesh of Americans uh, in, in foreign wars or situations where we can accomplish very much. So that is a kind of a lesson that's been absorbed. But once again, uh, it will uh, some will, what will happen next will depend somewhat on what uh, rogue states or others that are not particularly friendly to us choose to do and how they they. Yeah find their relationship. I don't think we are going to be out on some crusading uh, uh, venture, uh, but it may be that we will yeah. see the need, as was developing uh, under Trump, to um, to uh, rein in Confucius Institutes, for example, uh, to um, restrict uh, access to um, technology. Uh, and I think that possibly some of that will continue uh, probably more, more uh, lightly in the the Biden administration. But again, foreign events could really uh, alter the the mood and the circumstance. So I think it's going to be that attempt to kind of thread the needle between being very concerned about what's happening far afar, but but not being so bumptious or or, uh, too too eager to get involved. But believe me, this a matter. I have, I have good friends in Australia who send me frequently uh, reports on the pressures that they are under. Yes. And and I have friends in Japan also and report the same thing. So uh, uh, this is not something that American can can just uh, hide from. Yes. And uh, I suspect that that will be a, a, a sobering part of the mood for conservatives. Uh, it, yes. it won't perhaps reach the level of a Cold War type consensus unless something really dramatic happens in, with Iran or yes. China. But, but that is, uh, I think, a, a tendency there to, toward more vigilance again and not simply yes. withdrawal. Yes. Now, our time is starting to run short here, Dr. Nash, and I'm, I'm going to give you a chance to give us some parting wisdom. But before I do that, one of the things that occurs to me as we've been uh, interacting back and forth, based on all of your many years of studying and reflecting on conservatism and its role in American public life, what do conservatives need to hear right now? I think you've alluded to it in your in your remarks, but what do we need to hear right now about our resources, the potential that we have uh, to come together, to really be a force for good in the country, a force for political and cultural renewal? What 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 are we not kind of getting or remembering as conservatives about what it is? that we have, a, a, a legacy, resources, et cetera. What would you put on the table? Well, part of the issue here among conservatives right now is to what extent is America redeemable? <laughs> and some are very, very critical of, of America as, as flawed from the get-go even. Yeah. Uh, there's that, a faction that believes that. Uh, there, And yeah. so it's, it's not gonna be easy, but uh, again, if you get up in the morning and look out and you can see, I think, many positive features of the United States that perhaps are being lost sight of in, in all of the turmoil of, of, of media coverage and so on. And 
I think that therefore the conservatives need, again, as I said at the end of my talk, they need simply to ask themselves, what do we want? What, what do we see as a more, as a better arrangement going forward? Well, we're not builders of a utopia, but it seems like that we can define some of our objectives and methodology by these, these beliefs in freedom, security, order, ordered freedom, and so on. Uh, so that I hope that's not sounding too amorphous, but it seems to me that conservatives have to convey that kind of, of yeah. affirmative sense of America as it's something worth still defending, improving, yes. purifying, but not, not overturning. Yes. So, the, the phrases you use, the words you use was freedom. I think freedom, virtue, and security as kind of three pillars, perhaps, of a way of thinking about this. Did I get that right? Yes, yes. And uh, I, I, I would just uh, say uh, that is something that conservatives could get a hold of. I've been impressed as a historian and, and sometimes depressed by what <laughs> I see the dissension now in the ranks of conservatives. Yeah. Uh, it's gotten much more personal and, and, and uh, even nasty at times. Yeah. Uh, it was never perfectly amicable in all those years. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to write a book about it if everyone <laughs> simply agreed. Obviously, there are disagreements and the like. So yeah. all of that is uh, is part of something we need to recall. Yeah. But I think that it's important that we recognize that while we don't always agree on everything, there are some some fundamentals that we do agree upon uh, it looks like we lost the audio there for Dr. Nash, uh, which is which is quite unfortunate because I, I hopefully he can hear me because I want to thank him. Uh, I want to thank him for uh, incredible insights. It seems to me about the conservative movement, where we've come, where we're going. Uh, how do we pull together around some commonly held principles and ideals? Um, conservatism and America's future. You know, here we are. Look, if you work on the Hill, if you work at a think tank or you just have questions, please contact me uh, using the information uh, listed on the screen. Happy to keep up the conversation. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, you'll get a survey here, uh, and we hope you'll uh, complete that survey so we can bring ideas that you care about into the public square. Uh, to see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org forward slash events. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Have a terrific afternoon. Sorry about the technical glitches, but we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much.